This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. How are you this Tuesday? It is great to have you along. Today, did you know the biggest user of hardwood timber in Western Australia is a company that makes high-quality silicon metal that's used to make all sorts of things, including computer tech and solar panels? The company is Simcoa, and it turns jarrowwood into charcoal, which gets used to manufacture silicon. Director David Miles says they're currently struggling to access half the amount of wood they actually need. And he says at this stage their only alternative is to import coal from Colombia. Coal is a globally um, a very adverse thing to do because it increases your carbon footprint. So uh, commercially it's, it's, uh, it represents a problem. Secondly, uh, coal is only 53% carbon versus charcoal, which is 92%. So we have to handle nearly twice as much coal as carbon in our process. And frankly, our, our systems can't cope with that uh, extra load. David Miles is going to go more into the detail about the situation he's facing just before news headlines at half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Also today, some timely rain and some very good prices are encouraging many growers right across the country to plant as much canola seed as they possibly can. Catching up with Andrew Whitelaw, a market analyst after half past 12 today. And speaking of rain, there has been some glorious rain falling across parts of the Pilbara today and really making a difference to the seasonal conditions for pastoralists in the region. The cloud band is slowly making its way across the Pilbara and it's still got a bit more in it before it starts to weaken off a little later today. Michael Percy is from Yaline Station, about 200 kilometres south of Karratha. How much rain did you get overnight, Michael? Yeah, we received uh, 27 mil last night in a good shower, um, but we received 50 last Thursday. So um, all in all, it's a you know, really useful rain and it's been um, you know, pretty much over the property as well, so... You know, it's outstanding. How does it change the season? Oh, it changes it dramatically for us. Uh, the rain we'd had up till now was, you know, uh, summer, and it was patchy and fairly erratic, so it was quite light in a lot of areas. Had a couple of areas which were pretty good, but um, in general, the cattle didn't have a lot of feed in front of them. Well, they, they, they were all in good condition because we had enough to grow a bit of feed, but just... Um, we were sort of looking down a long dry spell if we didn't get some rain in the next month or two. Are you looking out the window at the moment from your homestead, Michael? Is it still raining? What can you see? Uh, it's not raining at the moment, but it doesn't sort of really feel like it's gone away. Um, and on the radar, it sort of shows you know, plenty of rain still around. So um, it seems to be a pretty reasonable chance that there's more, more about. So... Um, yeah, we're, you know, quite happy to receive it. I'm sure you are. What we, Where were you up to as far as muster is going? Have you already started? Yeah, that's right. We started um, before Easter sometime, about a week before. We were mustering through Easter and um, 
we were going through our breeders um, to take wieners off and, um, you know, just to take some mouths off the country and leave pressure on the cows and things to, you know, keep their condition up. And so we've sort of done the majority of them. Uh, we were kind of pulled up in a between phases, I suppose. We have some wieners in hand and um, we sort of process them and then start again. So this will change our program a bit. Probably need a bit of time to get on some of the country where we're mustering um, next because it uh, gets pretty boggy. So it'll probably slow it down a little bit, but now that we've started, we'll you know, work on keeping going. And, you know, we're sort of... Yeah, we've got wainers stacked up around here that haven't got a lot of feed in front of them either, so we need to sort of make room for them somewhere else and then move them. So, yeah, you know, we'll, it won't pull us up that much, but it definitely... Um, takes a lot of pressure off. How are the prices? Uh, prices are very good. You know, I think that's pretty well recorded. Although we we had some in the sale yesterday and they, I think the sale dropped about 20% on cows, so that wasn't great timing. But, but a, um, you know, in general, you know, they're, they're still holding up pretty well at the moment. Great to talk to you, Michael. Righto, thanks, Belinda. Michael Percy, he's from Yaleen Station. It is 10 past 12. We're moving from Yaleen Station. You're heading northeast, about 320 kilometres, to call into Munda Station and catching up with Michael Thompson. Michael, much rain in the gauge at your place? Uh, we had 12 at 9 o'clock this morning, um, but we've had a good shower since. I'd say we'd, we'd, I haven't been over to check. It has stopped now, but I, th- I think we'd be up around 20 mil now, yeah. And you're expecting any more? Does it look like it's hanging around? Well, if you look at the, what the Weather Bureau is saying, it's probably still a bit to come today and tonight, and then maybe a little, it's going to back off tomorrow, but little bits and pieces like we're having isn't a bad thing because it's not, it's not running away. It's all sinking in. The ground's pretty soft, and, yeah, I think it's a good thing at the moment, just these little bits and pieces that we are getting, yeah. Because we had you here on the Country Hour, I think it might have been last week, the week before, and it must have been dry because at the time you even said it was, you know, drought conditions at your place. So this is, what, a, real, a game changer, what you've had in overnight? Oh, I don't know about a game changer. 100 mil might, but <laughs> uh, we had 34 since July last year up to um, about three weeks ago, and then I don't know what happened. We weren't supposed to get any rain. And um, we didn't get it over the whole place, to be honest with you, but we had 30 at the homestead, so that brought us up to 64. And then uh, we had another 6 mil last Thursday, and with a high of about 18. And that 18 fell in some of our worst country, where we had a big portion of our land burnt through a thunder strike, and then, look, Whatever we've had, 20 mil now, I don't think we've had any at the Port Hedland end of our property, but definitely from the homestead going south, it's looking looking a lot better. I'd say maybe we might have had 30 down towards the Karatha end and probably two or three or four up the Port Hedland end. So overall, it's not, it's not, a, not a game changer, but definitely going to help us, yeah. So how's the country looking, the country and the cattle? Uh, well, our first master, the cattle were probably, the Karatha end probably average. That was the paddock down that end. And around the homestead, poor. Calves were poor. Wieners were poor. Then we did a paddock on the coast, 
that was their second muster, and I, I thought the cows had held up well, but they'd had they'd had March rain and then little bits and pieces since. So they were probably average, and their calves were good, and their weaners were good. And then our worst country was up the Yule River, which we carry a lot of cattle in that particular paddock, and um, I was just amazed. I took a stock agent up there two weeks ago, and we're going, well, we did have 40 mil up through there at that time, but it, it hadn't sort of started to make any difference. And then I I flew down through the river on, uh, I think, last Saturday, and I thought, geez, I was going to muster that paddock next, and I thought, geez, that looks pretty handy down there so I landed and I was got a pleasant surprise some of the it's not general you know half the paddock's pretty handy and the other half still showing the signs of a tough year but um I'd say we you know if we got 20 mil up through there this morning that's just going to help it and maybe it is a game changer because it isn't like we're in drought anymore not through that paddock and if we can get in there now we're going to have strong cows and we can actually get their calves and weaners off and hopefully get them through to the next rain, which whenever that's going to be. I'm really pleased to hear that. That sounds good. Where, where, I know you shop around. I know you like to shop around when you're um, looking at where to sell your cattle. What's looking good at the moment? What are the best options? Well, I think at the best, the best option seems to be the Eastern States. For, you know, for young cattle, they sort of want that 220, 240 average, which is probably where we're sitting at the moment because their cows just haven't had any summer rain and well, our, our weaners haven't had any summer rain so uh, we probably at the moment I'd say there's some good money in that market and we're going to probably hang on and you know probably in Jinjin we've, we've put about 12 or 1300 hectares of pastures in and try to lift the capabilities of that place to carry anything that goes out of those specs we're going to stock it up as much as we can down there and sell what we can and try and keep you know, the important thing is to protect their cows from what they're about to face ahead of them. Look, at the moment, it's all positive. You know, we've got... They're all going to get a blade, a green blade of grass this year, which is something I didn't think we, you know, we had in coming three weeks ago. So in the last three weeks, I think they're all going to taste some green grass, which is, is fantastic for them. Yeah, great to hear. How many head are you sending east and where exactly? Well, I sent a couple of thousand east, yes. Uh, last year, some went to South Australia, predominantly South Australia. This year, I've had calls from the Northern Territory, obviously, had good rains. Queensland are screaming for cattle. And from Munda across the top, it's about 4,500 coasts, and which saves about 1,500 if you went around the bottom. You can only put it out there. I sent some photos away to an agent yesterday and put a put a, what I thought was a fair figure on him. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> is it negotiable? Ah, oh, everything's negotiable <laughs> to get a deal done, yeah. Oh, well, you might be sending them off sooner than you think then. Well, it's just you can't, you know, we haven't had the luxury this year of having any feed in our holding paddocks around the homestead, so I really wanted to basically muster and truck and free our yards up because our yards do hold a lot of stock but you know we can't hold calves and weaners and you know the whole lot we just can't you can't handle that capacity but you know having an alternative and being able to truck as you muster um after a two-week weaning period helps us get it done 
Good to catch up with you, Michael. Thank you for that. It's Michael Thompson. He's from Mandabul and Ghana Station, so about 170 kilometres east of Karatha. He's happy with the bit of rain that he got overnight. It's just keeping things ticking along by the sounds of things, and some paddocks doing really well, which is great to hear. Joey Rawson from the Bureau of Meteorology is going to be here just after news headlines at half past 12, going through what lies ahead as far as that rain in the Pilbara and beyond, and checking conditions right across Western Australia. 17 past 12. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjimup, and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. Western Australia's biggest user of hardwood timber claims it can't get enough Jarrah to continue operating at full capacity. And I wonder, do you know who that might be, the state's biggest user of hardwood timber? Well, it's actually silicon manufacturing company Simcoa, which has some customers in the technology and renewable energy industries. And as Georgia Hargreaves explains, if Simcoa can't get enough hardwood timber, the alternative is pretty grim. That's the sound of silica quartz being processed and turned into silicon. Simcoa is Australia's only manufacturer of high-grade silicon and it operates right here in WA's southwest region. But recently, they've been running into a few issues. On a typical year, they use around 140,000 tonnes of hardwood timber during the process of making silicon. They mostly use Jarrah, which is sort of heated and turned into charcoal as a source of carbon. Jarrah charcoal produces a very high-purity silicon, which is used in products from the renewable energy sector, like solar panels and battery technology. David Miles is the director of site services at Simcoa, and he says this year the company only has access to around half their usual amount of timber, so they're short about 70,000 tonnes. I can only um, make a guesstimate as to the reason for this, but I think there's two reasons. Firstly, there's either the contractors are actually leaving the industry, so there's actually nobody to carry out the logging. And certainly we're hearing that there's a shortage of uh, truck drivers to even move the logs that are cut. I think the second reason is there is not enough uh, forestry areas uh, gaining approval for logging. Um, And I think that's probably the main reason. Forestry Minister Dave Kelly says he's not aware of any supply chain issues when it comes to Simcoa's contracted supply of timber. Well, FPC have a number of contractual obligations to different customers. So the Forest Products Commission is working to meet all those uh, demands. So Simcoa, you know, obviously a very important customer and FPC is in constant contact with them. Uh, weekly, if in some instances daily, and my understanding is at the moment that uh, the FPC are meeting their obligations to them. So I'm not aware of any contractual shortfall, but there are constraints in the economy uh, in the southwest. You know, haulage contractors are in short supply, for example. That's simply because the economy in the southwest is so strong that the demand for labour is is pretty intense. So you can have timber available, but there might be shortages in haulage contractors, for example. So we understand that uh, Simcoa, like um, most other businesses in the southwest where demand is high, that can result in 
you know, constraints. So is there an alternative to timber? Well, the company is looking at importing coal from Colombia and using it in place of charcoal made from Jarrah. Colombian coal is of higher purity and cleanliness than coal which comes out of local mines like the one in Collie, which is around two hours southeast of Perth. And David Miles says it's not only expensive to import, but it doesn't look good either. Coal is a globally um, a very adverse thing to do because it increases your carbon footprint. So uh, commercially, it's, it's, uh, it represents a problem. Secondly, uh, coal is only 53% carbon versus charcoal, which is 92%. So we have to handle nearly twice as much coal as carbon in our process. And frankly, our, our systems can't cope with that uh, extra load. But even though coal is not an ideal solution, the cost is still outweighed by the value and demand for high-grade silicon. The federal government has recently listed high-quality silica as a critical mineral, and experts say it's thought to be a key part in driving the world's green energy future. While the situation Simcoa is facing seems like a catch-22, sustainability professor Peter Newman says the solution is obvious. There is certainly going to be a lot of energy needed to make that transition, but we can grow trees specifically for that process, and a lot of that carbon is then growing into the soil and leaving more carbon dioxide in the ground as well as creating the uh, the source of carbon that can go into processing silicon it's not beyond us to be able to manage that it is certainly better than having coal we can't imagine a future with coal anymore that has finished and the processes will require us to to grow more trees as well as dig up more silicon and more lithium. These are the raw materials of the next economy. Sustainability Professor Peter Newman ending that report from Georgia Hargreaves. You can read more on the story. It's online for you right now. Just do a search for ABC Rural and Simcoa, which is spelt S-I-M-C-O-A, Simcoa. And you can read through George's story. 23 past 12, not far away from an update from the newsroom at half past 12. Just before that, though, if you're in the agricultural sector and you haven't been keeping across the ag policies that are on the table in the lead up to Saturday's election, then you are in luck because the NFF, the National Farmers Federation, has been doing that for you. And it sounds like there are some differences on things like instant asset write-offs, the live sheep trade and biosecurity funding. NFF President Fiona Simpson says the two major parties also have a different opinion on the ag visa. Labor is going to do a reworked Pacific Islander scheme, really, a Pacific Labor scheme, and they're going to make some tweaks to that scheme, which are are very welcome um, from what we understand there to be. And the Pacific scheme has always been incredibly important to agriculture, but it is not going to look at extending the ag visa or taking on the ag visa to the countries that the coalition has been working on and working very hard on, countries like Vietnam, for example, which have signed up to the initial scheme. So our concern 
concerns about that are that whilst we welcome and, and really appreciate the Pacific Scheme and want to engage and, and tweak that and, and keep improving that scheme because it's been important to not just our Pacific neighbours but also to, to farmers who've been using it for many years now, um, we also see the need and before COVID it was really obvious that uh, we needed to, to cast the net wider when we were looking for workers and so that, that we could cast the net wider to countries like Vietnam, for example, potentially Indonesia, uh, Thailand, to countries that um, perhaps there was a win-win for workers to come to our country to do some of the jobs that we have here, um, whilst also, of course, you know, uh, uh, filling those jobs here in our country. Uh, we've been working on it for many years. We've got to the point now we've been disappointed where we haven't been able to get workers on the ground yet through that Ag visa, but we're sort of right at the pointy end now um, and Labor's saying they're not going to support. So that's been really disappointing. So you think that uh, even though we don't have any workers on that scheme, which is Labor has pointed out from uh, in terms of Little Proud's Ag Visa. Given more time, it could still work. Well, we know that um, Vietnam has just signed up. Mm. Um, once we've actually had the agreement signed with one country, then we feel much more confident that other countries may well follow suit. And of course, this is uh, in conjunction with continuing to encourage Australian workers on the farms too, Michael, um, which is what something else we've been working on over the last few years, particularly, and you know, are, are now rolling out and, and looking at through schemes like Ag Career Start, for example, um, and other schemes where we're encouraging Australian workers to be on our farms too. It's a complex issue. We need absolutely every tool in the kit. The Ag Visa was one one of those important tools. We feel that we've been working on it really, you know, from an industry perspective for many years now. We've got to the pointy end. We've got a country to sign up and um, we think we should be now all systems go. Let's keep improving. Let's keep giving people confidence about um, working on farms. Let's keep engaging with industry and government and these other countries to find um, as many workers as we need to fulfil the needs going forward. I gather the NFF disappointed with Labor's intention to end live sheep exports and saying they're bowing to pressure from radical extremists there you think Yes, look, that's been a really disappointing uh, announcement by Labor and certainly one that the, uh, our industry has taken on board. Uh, look, they haven't indicated a time frame for that and we're encouraged that they have indicated that they will listen to the science. This is an industry that has changed absolutely comprehensively over the last few years in many, many ways. So we're encouraged that they say that they uh, will talk to industry, that they will listen to the science, they will listen to the data, um, and yet we have still this commitment that they want to phase this industry out and say that it's in decline, um, which we feel, again, is really not correct at all. Now, the Coalition has said it's not going to continue the instant asset write-off after 2023. You're not happy with that? No, hugely disappointing. This wasn't an initiative that came in at COVID at all. There's been some misrep misrepresentation. Yeah, that's what the Coalition's been saying after the event, isn't it? Yeah, no, it came in in 2015, I think it was, Michael, well before COVID. So I, I don't think they're quite right on that one. And not just for agriculture, but for rural and regional communities too, for small and medium businesses right across Australia. This has been a, a huge opportunity for us to expand and to update our machinery, to update our, our small 
small assets that we have on farm. And so it's been disappointing that the coalition, whilst they haven't absolutely said that they're going to rule it out, they've certainly used some weasel words in there and we're not sure what they're going to do with that instant asset. And, And Labor, just to be clear, hasn't indicated its position as yet on that. No, they haven't either. Um, Mm. So like a lot of these policy announcements, Michael, Labor has indicated on many of them that they're happy to talk to industry, which is encouraging. Um, And they've they've sort of declined to rule many things in or out. And they've said they're open to the conversation. The coalition, I think, has been relying on the fact that we've worked well with them in the past and that there are certainly some initiatives that we've been following through their leadership that have helped our industry. But overall, I think, and people can go online, they can download, you know, www.timetothrive.com.au to get the full scorecard. But I think over overall, we were really looking at um, some support for some of the big game-changing policy ideas that we'd put forward that our members had worked on around regional growth, around sustainability, around our workforce, around competition laws and around connectivity. And we haven't seen, even though... Each and every party, I think, has indicated their support for our industry. Unfortunately, we've seen these sorts of, you know, piecemeal announcements, bits and pieces that we've put together in our scorecard and has sort of indicated why, um, you know, the score has has ended up as it has. But we're disappointed not to have seen this embracing of of some of the the absolutely massive policy shifts that we're going to need in Australia to make the most of of our, our path towards 2030. Fiona Simpson from the National Farmers Federation with Michael Condon. Half past 12 here on the Country Hour. A couple of texts just coming through. This one from Brett in Esperance who says, so actually no, Pedro's first. A good effort by the NFF to assess the ag policy matters. Great, they're finally getting less woke. I note they didn't touch the teal independents, One Nation, Greens, who possibly might be the powerful crossbench in a potentially hung parliament. More dewoking to come, according to Pedro. And just on the news that the silicon manufacturer Simcoa may be forced to import coal as Jarra supplies dwindle, which is really needed in the manufacturing of silicon. This from Brett in Esperance, who says, so now we're going to import coal from a third world country. This is exactly what Wiserhead said would happen with the banning of logging of old growth forestry. This is a lazy, not in my backyard form of environmentalism. It's dangerous and should be called out. Thanks for that, Brett. Text through, have your say. 0448 922604 is the text. Shoot it through between now and the news at 1. 29 to 1. An update from the newsroom now with Garrett Mundy. Thanks, Belinda. In the news this afternoon, the WA Premier has apologised to the family of a woman who died after waiting more than two and a half hours for an ambulance. 80-year-old Georgina Wilde died after reportedly suffering chest pains in the early hours of Sunday morning. Her call to triple zero was flagged as priority one, requiring assistance in 15 minutes. Mark McGowan has described the situation as clearly not acceptable. Scott Morrison has again refused to say whether or not he will look to remain leader of the Liberal Party should the coalition lose this weekend's election. The Prime Minister has spent the morning campaigning in Darwin, targeting the Labor-held seat of Lingiari. Asked on Channel 7 if he would lead the party in opposition, Mr Morrison said he was focused solely on winning Saturday's poll. And NASA's Perseverance rover has reached a big moment in its mission on Mars. It's set to begin the climb up an ancient delta feature, examining rocks that look to have the best chance of retaining 
evidence of past life on the planet. On its way back down, the robot will collect some of the rocks, placing them at the base of the delta to be retrieved by later missions. More news coming up at one o'clock, Belinda. Garrett, thank you so much for that update. It is 28 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. And between now and the news at one off to Muche, just before one o'clock, Tracy Kilner going through the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today and also talking about just how much canola is being planted across the country. There's quite a bit going in and it's mainly been driven by the pretty good prices that you can get for canola these days. Talking about that in some more detail with Andrew Whitelaw, a market analyst with Thomas Elder Markets, very shortly. First, though, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson is on deck this afternoon. And, Joey, earlier in the show, we were spending some time in the Pilbara catching up with a couple of pastoralists who are pretty pleased with the rain that's coming through in that cloud band. Is there any more on the way for northern and eastern parts of Western Australia? Yeah, Bell, um, there's been a really good cloud band that's developed from the Pilbara and it stretches east-southeast. And uh, that cloud band is certainly producing some really good rainfall. So we've had some falls above 100 millimetres at Varanus Island. And this morning at Onslow, uh, we've had some falls around 70 millimetres in three hours. So some quite uh, intense rainfall over a short period, which is uh, really good. Uh, That rainfall is going to continue and it's going to extend into the interior of the state uh, during the next sort of 24 hours, then start to weaken. But for the next sort of 12 hours, we're going to continue to get that rain. And one of the key elements of this rain is it forms a train effect. So it's a long line of rain. And if you're under that line, you're just going to keep getting rain as that train effect comes over you. So uh, some places can get some really good rainfalls with this type of weather. Okay, so what sort of falls might you expect if you're under that train? Yeah, so some of the rainfalls that we've seen, like above 100 millimetres, some places could get up to 130 if you're in the right or wrong spot, depending if you want the rain. Okay, so then beyond the Pilbara, is any of the rain getting into other parts, the Kimberley or eastern parts? Yeah, it's going to go mainly in an east-southeast direction to the sort of north and south interior. So the Kimberley is going to miss out on it. And as it gets further inland, it's going to weaken. So there's not going to be as much out of that rainfall. Okay, and looking ahead then, what can we see for northern and eastern parts? Yeah, so once this cloud band weakens and, and moves out to the east, then there's not a lot um, in the future. So it's really focused on on what this event is doing. So um, then we start focusing on the south of the state. All right, let's have a look. Yeah, so we've got a, a pretty decent, um, it's called a cut-off low that's off the west coast right now, and there's a fair few thunderstorms offshore at the moment. So that's going to reach the west coast uh, later tonight and uh, cause uh, some, a fair bit of rain as it moves through. So near the west coast, uh, we can expect around 10 to 20 millimetres, but I wouldn't rule out some places getting around that 30 millimetre range if some things do line up. And that would be in an area south of Durian Bay all the way down to Margaret River. And as this system tracks further inland, uh, we can expect uh, still falls, but uh, those falls to be around that 5 to 15 millimetre range. So still a bit of rainfall extending into the southwest land division as this system moves inland. All right. And then looking ahead, how far can we see? Yeah. So with that system, that's going to move out to the east on Thursday. And then for the southwest land division for Thursday and Friday, we're still going to have cloudy conditions, uh, but we're not expecting significant significant rain, but we could get around one to five millimetres on both Thursday and Friday um, through the Southwest Land Division. 
And this afternoon then, Joey, any warnings? Uh, yeah, we do have a, a flood watch uh, for the Pilbara. So that's for the Pilbara Coastal Rivers, the Fortescue River, the Onslow Coast, the Ashburton River, and also the Sandy Desert catchments. And we do have a coastal wind warnings for the Albany and Esperance Coasts. That's great. Thanks so much for going through those details, Joey. Appreciate that. It is 23 to 1. Taking a look at the rainfall figures now. So a look back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. Here's Richard Hudson. Yeah, and the really shining the spotlight on the northern and eastern forecast districts. But as you already mentioned in the first half, it's particularly in the Pilbara because the Kimberley recorded nothing at all. But in the Pilbara, Coolawanya 25, Karratha 36, Marty 47, Mount Stewart 11, Onslow 54, Panawanica 38, Sherlock 24, we're Ambi 29 and Yaleen 27. So I might add that's only up until 9am today because, as uh, Joey just mentioned, since then I think there's been some, some decent rain. Very nice to hear. Nothing worth reading out for the rest of the northern and eastern forecast districts, so nothing in the Gascoigne or the interior or the Goldfields or the Euclid districts, but significant rain on the islands. Barrow Island recorded 51, Thevenard 13 and Varanus Island 103. And then nothing at all for the Southwest Land Division forecast districts. Not anything at all over one mil, which is quite unusual. Richard, thank you for that. Appreciate it. 22 to 1 here on the Country Hours. Still to come. Off to Mouche for the results of the sheep market. Also taking a look at the decision by the Indian government to ban wheat exports effective immediately. Why and what does that mean? For wheat stocks around the world, you'll find out very shortly. First, though, timely rain, as you've just been hearing about, and some incredibly good prices are encouraging many growers across the country to plant as much canola seed as possible this season. Last year, 2.9 million hectares of canola was harvested across Western Australia, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. And it's estimated... Just a little bit more than that, 3.3 million hectares have been sown to canola so far this year. Andrew Whitelaw is a market analyst with Thomas Elder Markets. Andrew, is price the key driving factor in these record canola plantings? Look, I think think the major component is price. When we look at markets, we're really looking for price incentives. What is the incentive to grow wool? What is the incentive to grow sheep meat? Or in this case, what is the incentive to grow canola? And look, I remember talking to you this time last year about how fantastic the uh, the canola price was. And it was probably around about $800 a tonne. Now for the coming harvest, we're talking closer to $1,200 a tonne. And bearing in mind that traditionally $600 a tonne was a good price. So that is a pretty good incentive for farmers who have got the moisture to think about planting planting canola. And that's what we're starting to see. Huge acreages. And so what are the, the factors at play behind that price, driving that price when you take a look around the world? It's a long sort of convoluted flow of events. But really, first of all, it started off, the, the wheel drive was last year's uh, drought in Canada. That really pushed things higher. And then since then, we've had, in recent times, we've had the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. You know, Ukraine is a, is a major exporter of things like sunflower, but also uh, rapeseed. And then you've got sort of political events. Uh, Indonesia has banned the export of palm oil. 
So you've got an environment where vegetable oils, and I'm talking about things like soybeans, palm, cottonseed, sunflower oils, and canola, are all in quite short supply. So we're seeing extremely high prices. And if you've got high prices, that encourages people to to plant. They're sort of the, the factors at play for this season. Do you see any major changes, doing a little crystal ball gazing, do you see any major changes in terms of those kind of key world factors changing in any way in the next season, so next year? Look, next season is a, is a, is a long horizon away. There, there is an old saying in markets that high prices are the cure for high prices. So if we see too much getting planted around the world, we could see a reduction. And we're talking for next year's planting, like 2023 planting. But the reality is, if we're looking at this current harvest coming, there's not much standing between canola and high prices. There's not much that can happen to, for us to see canola prices drop considerably. And, and that is a good news sort of story for, for, for Australian farmers because we are going to have one of the best crops, comparatively speaking, to other parts of the world. France is looking not great. Canada is still looking pretty dry. Ukraine's probably unavailable for the next couple of months. It's all really good news. And, um, and that is what is meaning that you know, farmers are, are willing to plant it. And look, if you, if you talk to anyone in a seed company who sells canola seed, if they could get more seed, they would have buyers lining up. And anecdotally, I spoke to a farmer in, uh, in South Australia who, who grows very little canola normally. He, 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 in the first week of sowing, he said, oh, I'm going to do 200 hectares. That's a, that's a big program for me. He had some seed left over and the market rose. And now he's at 400 hectares. And bearing in mind that 200 hectares is, is a lot for him. So, so people are growing it. And uh, that should be good for the margins, touch wood. And that's despite the you know, very high input costs at the moment. It's certainly not putting growers off. It doesn't seem to be. Like, like that, and that is the big risk that we see from the whole marketplace at the moment is, is the cost price squeeze. We've got high costs, you know, probably close to record costs on things like diesel, labour, chemicals and fertiliser. So the big four inputs that you have into a, a cropping farm, they're all expensive. It, machinery is expensive as well if you want to get new stuff. And so that is the concern is over the coming years is that if market prices for the output, you know, for the canola or wheat drops, then that really is a squeeze on the margins of, of, of farmers in Australia. So that, that is our number one concern. But we think this year, touch wood, fingers crossed, weather permitting, all going well, that we will see good margins this year. It's next year and the year beyond where we could see issues arising. But that's a long way away. Let's just enjoy it while we've got it. Some interesting figures in the latest release from the Australian Oil Seeds Federation, Andrew. And maybe you can just put your analysis over the top of this for me. So looking at Western Australia in particular, so for the 21-22 season, one and a half million hectares went in the ground and that produced just over three million tonnes. Then for 2022, so this year and at this point, 1.7 million hectares being sown to canola and the production estimate is 2.6 million tonnes. So how do you uh, account for that discrepancy? Look, look I'll make an assumption. Uh, AOF might tell me I'm wrong, but I would, I would be basing that on, I think those numbers are pretty secure, good numbers. Last year's crop is, is done and dusted. We know that we had in Western Australia, in a lot of places, almost ideal conditions 
for growing canola, hence the really strong yields. It's important to note, though, we're in May just now. A long way to go until harvest, and a lot can happen. So, so when you're computing in forecasts for the coming harvest, you can't put in record rainfall. You can't put in perfect rainfall. You just have to go for the average. And so it's a, it's a pretty simple calculation of, well, what would the average kind of yields be? And maybe slightly above average, might be a bit more positive because of the good conditions versus the, the hectares. And we think in canola, it's quite easy to get a good solid number on the acreage because uh, I think a lot of the seed companies provide that data. Uh, and that's fairly solid because we know most people buy their seed every year on, on canola. So so it's probably just it's probably just a factor of uh, of using an average to work out the, the projection for this year. What I would say... And a big, big disclaimer in bold is uh, anything can change between now and then. We could end up having the same yields as last year. It could stop raining and we could have terrible yields. So I still always take forecasts at this time of year as a guide, not as a, as a cemented uh, piece of data. Andrew, great to get your thoughts. Thank you so much for being part of the show. No worries. Anytime. Market analyst Andrew Whitelaw. Quarter to one here on the Country Hour on the ABC. And turning your attention from canola to wheat now, to learn more about the impact of India's decision to tighten wheat exports and what it all means for prices, grain prices. Now, you heard about this just briefly on yesterday's Country Hour, but I want to go into it in a little more detail because India is one of the world's biggest wheat producers And over the weekend, the Indian government banned wheat exports effective immediately. And that's due to food security concerns following a dry season. Dennis Vosnesensky is an agricultural analyst with Rabobank. He thinks this is quite a significant announcement because it shows the global grain market is moving away from being free. If you look at the details so far that have been released, one is that where contracts were already made, some of that can actually be exported all, all the way through July. And then if you look further into the details, one thing is that even private exporters theoretically can still export, but they need approval from the government. And uh, we're likely to see a lot more government-to-government transactions uh, for wheat. So, for example, it could be India selling to Egypt. So while it seems like it's going to be an outright ban, and it's still a, it is still a big deal, we're not going to lose all that wheat from the global supply and demand. Effectively, is this the Indian government stepping in and regulating its exports of wheat rather than it being a free market? Yeah, I, I think that is the case. So as the geopolitical environment gets uh, more and more, maybe we can use the word negative, we're likely to see more of these government-to-government uh, transactions happening for commodities. And this is just one of those examples where the Indian government went, all right, yes, one of the reasons they're doing it, they're saying it's because it was really dry, and it was dry. But on the other hand, it could also be more of a, a political instrument to be able to export where they want to, as opposed to the private sector, which would export to where the highest price is. So maybe they, they're going to export wheat to more allies or more, for example, in exchange for something else that another government could give them. How significant is that, that step away from a free market structure to really controlling where your commodities are going? Do we see that, that anywhere else in the world? During COVID, when there was a lot of uh, food price inflation starting, so of course food price inflation has accelerated around the world now, but it started earlier. And Argentina tried to ban exports for a little while. Russia put export taxes on. This was before uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. And 
uh, as prices started to escalate, you're starting to see not only importing countries trying to import, import a lot more, but exporting countries going, wait, hold on, we might need a lot of that grain here because food prices uh, are starting to go up. So it's just another one, uh, another step towards more uh, regulation globally and away from free markets. Does that concern you from where you sit? It's not so much a concern as it's just a shift in the way uh, markets are structured and the way markets work. It's a really big change. The way the grain trade works globally is starting to move away from free markets, which we've seen for a very long time, uh, to now more government intervention. So is it concerning? I think typically when governments get involved in the grain trade, it makes it less efficient. So, for example, uh, that wheat that would have come out of India a lot easier if it was in private hands, now it's going to maybe it might take a little bit longer to come out of India. So there may be countries who are really reliant on wheat right now, and there's a shortage who may be left without it or have to pay higher prices. Mm. I was going to ask you, who loses here when you have governments controlling where food does and doesn't go? Who essentially misses out? So, for example, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, UAE, they're they're big importers of Indian wheat in years where India does uh, export wheat. And what it means for them is that typically, from an economic perspective, it makes sense to import from India. And now that they won't be able to, or just to the same same extent they won't be able to, they're going to have to pay higher freight rates, get it from somewhere else, maybe get it from a place like Australia, maybe from the US. And it's going to raise prices. And in countries like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, where they're already seeing high food price inflation, it's just going to make things even worse. For context, Dennis, India is a really big wheat producer, but in terms of its exports, how significant is that in the market annually? If we compare it to Australia, Australia exports anywhere from 20 to 27 million tonnes. Of course, in in drought years, it's a lot less. Uh, India, they were expected to export anywhere from five to some estimates were saying 15 million tonnes. The average has been around eight. Uh, So it is big. It's not a massive exporter. A lot of that wheat is consumed domestically. And you've got to remember that in years where Indian stocks are low or production is low, they weren't actually large exporters at all. So if you look back at 2018-19, they export around 500,000 tonnes. It's only when you move towards 2020, they went to 2.5 million tonnes in 2021, where they had 8 million tonnes of export, or at least expected to be that high. So they don't always export a significant amounts, but since they've had a couple of good crops in a row, their stocks are built up and they're going to export And given that the world doesn't have Ukraine, given that the world's been having all these issues around wheat supplies, the world is relying on India uh, to fill at least part of that void. Is there any upside for Australian growers with this move from India, given that they're harvesting now? Our harvest is quite a few months away. I think between now and mid-year, when harvest starts in the Northern Hemisphere, so if we look at the Black Sea, so Russia would be exporting, uh, Europe would be exporting some, and North America would be later on. Between then and now, there's going to be a window. So if anyone still has weeds that they haven't sold, the price might go up for them. Uh, but moving into harvest, look, it's just it's like you said, it's another one of those things that just adds to the constraints on supply. The biggest constraint would be now. So it would be those exporters who were expecting to get uh, wheat from India who can't. Uh, but moving into harvest, uh, we're going to have to wait and see. Maybe they're going to turn around in two months and say, you know, this was a bad idea. It's made things really inefficient. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens there. Dennis Vosnesensky, he's an agricultural analyst with Rabobank, speaking to Joe Prendergast. And it is interesting to see how wheat prices have moved uh, since India's announcement to ban wheat exports. If you look at the CBOT, so the Chicago Board of Trade, which is regarded as the global benchmark, 
Last Wednesday on the CBOT, global wheat prices were trading at 594 Australian dollars a tonne for December. Yesterday, that price shot up to $661 a tonne. Now, here in WA, the prices aren't that high, but they're still historically very good. So forward prices for APW, Australian Premium White, ex-Quinana, are now $485 to $495 a tonne. That is good. But I guess when you compare it to $661 on the global benchmark CBOT, it does make you think what you're missing out on if you're a grain grower here in Western Australia, basically a difference of $166 a tonne. Now, those increasing prices are not only due to India's decision to limit wheat exports, but some other news just coming through recently that France has announced just a few days ago that the condition of its wheat crop is starting to come off a bit because of the ongoing dry conditions. So basically, all of this just adding to that situation of a tightening of wheat stocks around the world. Seven minutes to one. Just talking about India and wanting to let you know that the Western Australian government is organising a trade and business mission to India and it's going to take place in July. If you would like to go along, you better be quick putting in a submission. Uh, Judging by a WA government media release, the aim of the mission is to strengthen government and industry connections and see what sort of future trade, business and investment opportunities might be there. The timing of this trip is pretty good because you might remember hearing that India and Australia recently signed an interim economic cooperation and trade agreement, and primary industries including mining and energy are listed as some of the industries that will be prioritised. Now, you can apply to be included in the mission. The expressions of interest are being handled online And it's open until May 27, so you've only got 10 days left to put your hand up to go along. The trade mission to India will be from July the 12th to the 19th, and it's going to be led by Deputy Premier Roger Cook. The easiest way to find more information on this is to search for Roger Cook Media Statements, and that will take you to his announcement, which includes links to the expression of interest. Five minutes to one. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Cotton growers in Western Australia's Kimberley might be able to get next season's crops processed in the Northern Territory instead of having to send them all the way over to Queensland. And that's because work is now well underway on the NT's cotton processing plant at Tawu Station, just north of Catherine. Tipperary Station's David Connolly is chair of the WANT Cotton and he says it won't be too long before the gin is fully operational. Yep, it'll be running this year, but it won't be commercially ginning anybody's cotton. It will just be some test modules that we've we've held aside that we'll run through the all the machines to make sure it's working properly, and then 2023 will be the you know the first commercial ginning. What kind of impact do you see this gin having on the region? The impact that it will have will be on the growers being able to process in the Northern Territory. It'll have impact on income for people that work at it and in the industry, and it'll have a magnificent impact on the Northern Territory. You know, it'll be an economic powerhouse, this gin for the Territory, being able to gin or process 
growing cotton out of the Territory and uh, process it here and, and send it out of Darwin Port. So it's going to uh, the whole supply chain. There'll be benefits right along the supply chain. So you see those flow-on effects to, to towns like Catherine as well then? Yep, the huge flow-on effects to Catherine. Whether they like it or not, they're going to benefit from this gin. You mentioned whether they like it or not. There, there has been, um, you mentioned some criticism of the gin from local council. Do you think you've answered your critics? I don't know. That's up to the critics to d- decide whether it's been answered or not. We've been open and honest and factual about all parts of the industry since day one. I can't organise what other people are going to think. They'll think for themselves, those that want to think for themselves. But, you know, we don't need Catherine Town Council's approval. This is an industry that's a legal industry under under the rules of the Northern Territory. But I can tell you with 100% confidence and assurity that Catherine Region and all the farming regions will benefit from this industry. What kind of impact in, in terms of the economy? How many jobs do you expect this gin to create and, and what kind of boost to the to the local economy? Well, this, this gin here, will, that the workers inside the gin on it in its first ginning run will have 15 or 20 new new jobs that, that aren't in the Territory at the moment, so we've got to find those people, you know, that, so there'll be more employment in the Territory. And then the, the trickle-down effect, you know, it goes to uh, farmers being able to finally grow a crop that that makes some profitability for them and so that their families can survive on the land and they can employ people in, in their farms. So it'll grow their local economies, which will grow the Northern Territory's economy, which uh, we've been trying to find a silver bullet crop for the Northern Territory and, and it looks like the way the cotton's been growing for us under rain, under the rain fall up here, it looks like this might be the silver bullet crop. David Connolly, who is Tipperary Station Manager and also Chair of WANT Cotton speaking to Max Rowley about how he hopes the Northern Territory's new cotton gin might be up and running next year. And a number of cotton growers are behind that gin. This is the Country Hour, two minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The government's election costings come with a sting in the tail. Public sector funding cuts, which unions fear, could mean the end for thousands of jobs. Domestic violence survivors could soon get 10 days paid leave. How will it help thousands in need? And McBoycott in response to the war in Ukraine. McDonald's pulls out of Russia after three decades. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. 5,853 sheep and lambs sold at Mushay today, so that's about half the size of last week's yarding. Tracy Kilner, can you run through the prices? The lamb prices trended down with processor demand easier and selective with the numbers offered. Heavy lambs sold to a top of $186, while the heavier weight ewes gained with low numbers on offer. Air freight weight lambs made from 45 for light store lines up to 125 for the better presented prime pens. Trade weight sold from $95 to $138. An excellent run of heavy lambs made from $130 to a top of $186. Heavy ram lambs sold to processors for $105 to $130. The merino weather hoggets made $77 to $100. And young merino u hoggets sold at $61 up to $168 for the best. Mutton fluctuated with store ewes selling from 51 to 100 and medium to heavyweight ewes returned 110 to 155 with a fleece. Best heavy weathers returned $180 and mature rams finished down on last week selling from 52 to $100 to processors. 
This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for going through those details. Tracy is going to be back here this time tomorrow going through the results of the Catanning Sheep Market. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.